Looking at our world from a theological perspective, this is the Theology Central Podcast, making Theology Central. Good evening, everyone. It is Tuesday, June the 27th, 2023. It is currently 9.16 p.m. Central Time, and I'm coming to you live from the very dark Theology Central studio located right here in Abilene, Texas. Now, some of you may be saying, yes, it is dark because you are in darkness because you are a heretic. Okay, okay. All right. So, so maybe I shouldn't have said it that way because I just gave ammunition to people who criticize this podcast. No, it is dark because not of my theology. It is dark literally because the studio lamp that I have loved for so long has decided to leave us. It has passed away. It has given up the light. It uh, the the lamp is gone and so I need to buy a replacement which costs money. It's, it's an awesome lamp. It's like 6 foot tall. It lights up the entire studio. It's amazing. It sits right, it stands right behind me. Love it, but it's gone. And you say, "Well, you don't have any other light in your studio?" Well, no, there's a light at the bottom of the stairs to the studio. The ceiling fan that was installed in here has no light. That's right above me. It would be awesome if it did because then, you know, that would be great. So currently, I am broadcasting to you in the dark. I do have a flashlight. I do have a flashlight. I have my Mac, you know, MacBook Pro that we're broadcasting on. It's, you know, it's display. It helps a little bit. And then my iPad next to me. So I don't have a lot of light, which makes me a little nervous because we're in the middle of a sermon review, right? Remember your homework assignment in Jeremiah chapter 7, Jeremiah chapter 7, Verse 12, we read these words, Jeremiah chapter 7, verse 12, but go ye now unto my place, which was in Shiloh, where I set my name at the first and see what I did, what I did to it for the wickedness of my people, Israel. So since we're studying the book of Jeremiah for the summer of 2023, I wanted everyone to spend some time studying Shiloh learning, basically being a detective and learning everything about Shiloh and figuring out what happened there, because obviously God is almost using this as a, a warning. Hey, go look at what happened at Shiloh. Go look and, and do, and that should motivate you to do something. It should demonstrate something to you. So I asked everyone, look up every reference to Shiloh. And I want you to know the who, what, where, when, and how. What happened? Why did it happen? And how does all of that information help you understand Jeremiah chapter 7, verse 12? Let me read it to you again. But go ye now unto my place, which was in Shiloh, where I set my name at the first, and see what I did to it for the wickedness of my people Israel. I wanted you to learn everything about it. Learn everything you can about Shiloh. Look up all the scriptures. Tell you, then I told you to look at Bible dictionary, Bible handbook, encyclopedia. Summarize everything you've learned about it and then figure out what, how does that help you understand Jeremiah 7, 12? And then how, what is that? How do you apply that to yourself in 2023? And I also told you as a part of your homework assignment, grab the Sermons 2.0 app, type in Shiloh and find just the first random sermon and listen to it. And I thought I would participate with you guys. So I grabbed the Sermons 2.0 app, did a search for Shiloh, and found a sermon entitled, Yahweh is Captured. And I chose it just because that sounds like a cool title. So we started reviewing it in part one. And remember, this doesn't count as your sermon. You still need to, to listen to a random sermon on your own. But I thought this would be, well, it'd be fun to hear me pick a random sermon. Now, we started reviewing it in part one. I wanted to get much further. That didn't really happen. But we're going to try to finish it tonight. Now, here, I, I, once again, when you choose a sermon, you know, at random, you don't listen to it in advance. You don't know what's coming. There, there's always there's always negatives that can arise from that. And the negative in this particular case is the sound quality of this sermon is, <laughs> is getting on my nerves. There's some kind of like through the whole thing. It's like. <laughs> the whole time. I don't know what it is. I don't know what happened. 
They obviously either didn't review the audio or review the audio and was like, hey, it's good enough. Let's upload it anyway. But setting that aside, this sermon is not, 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 it's not obviously on Jeremiah 7, 12. It's on, it's in 1 Samuel chapter 4. 1 Samuel chapter 4. And in 1 Samuel chapter 4, we read these words. 1 Samuel chapter 4, verse 1. And the word of Samuel came to all Israel. Now Israel went out against the Philistines to battle and pitch beside Ebenezer, and the Philistines pitch in Aphek. And the Philistines put themselves in array against Israel. And when they joined battle, Israel was smitten before the Philistines and they slew, uh, and they slew of the army in the field about 4,000 men. All right, so please note, the word of Samuel came to all Israel. Israel went out against the Philistines to battle, pitched beside Ebenezer. The Philistines pitched in Aphek, and the Philistines put themselves in array against Israel, and they joined battle. Israel was smitten before the Philistines, and they slew of the army in the field about 4,000 men. Now, the most obvious question to me would be, why did they lose? Why were they smitten? I think that's a, that's a, if you're going to preach this text, that should be the first question is why did they lose? And, and, and it's very important to our understanding of Shiloh because look what happens. Verse three. And when the people were come into the camp, the elders of Israel said, wherefore, wherefore hath the Lord smitten us today before the Philistines? Or basically we could translate it. Why hath the Lord smitten us today before the Philistines? Why did this happen? That's the question they ask. Why did this happen? And, and it's a question I believe you need to figure out because in the sermon that we're reviewing for some weird reason, he hasn't bothered to answer that question. And it's, it's kind of been like the weird thing that he hasn't answered yet. Then, so they say, let us fetch the Ark of the Covenant of the Lord out of Shiloh. So because of this defeat, Israel's like, let's go to Shiloh and get the Ark of the Covenant. So they are defeated. They don't, they, they don't know. They don't seem to understand why they ask, why were we defeated? And I, I don't know if they wait for an answer. I don't, they, they don't ever get an answer, but their solution is let's go to Shiloh and get the Ark. So obviously Shiloh then, is connected with the presence of the Ark of the Covenant. All right. We know they get the Ark of the Covenant. All right. So let us fetch the Ark of the Covenant of the Lord out of Shiloh unto us, that when it cometh among us, it may save us out of the hand of our enemies. It seems that it's almost like, hey, we don't know why we were defeated. Why? In fact, if you really think about it, look at how they ask the question. Wherefore hath the Lord smitten us today before the Philistines? Now, now I got to be very careful here, and I didn't mention this in part one, but it it does it feel like to you? Now, this, this listen, this is not dogma. This is this is mere speculation. This is just me thinking out loud. Does it feel like to you that Israel's like, hey, why did God let us get defeated? Like God is the one. God is responsible for our defeat. Let me read it to a, to you again. First Samuel chapter four, verse three. Wherefore hath the Lord smitten us today before the Philistines? Why did God smite us? Why did God allow us to be defeated? Why did God defeat us? Well, I know what we'll do. We'll go to Shiloh, get the ark, and look how it says. It, not God, not he, it may save us out of the hand of our enemies. It, it, it almost as if they are saying, hey, God, God didn't help us. God defeated us. God allowed us to be beaten by the Philistines. You know what? We'll go get the ark. It will save us. God didn't, but the ark will. That, that's how it sounds to me. It sounds to me that they're saying, God, God let us get beat. Let's go get the ark. The ark. The, we can trust the ark. It will save us. And so that, that's kind of fascinating, right? There, there, that raises all kinds of questions. Is shallow, did shallow become a place, not where people worshiped God, but where they came to worship the ark? I, I don't know. I, I, did, did they transfer what belonged to God to the ark itself? And like, hey, we can't trust God, but we can trust the ark. Now, in the sermon we reviewed, 
he made a, he's, he, instead of answering these questions, right? He didn't answer the question why they were defeated. And he didn't really answer the question, well, wait a minute. In this verse, it seems like the contrast here is between God let us down. God allowed us to be defeated. God defeated us. We're going to go get the ark. It, it's going to save us. He didn't address any of that, but he spent not a lot of time, but a little bit of time arguing that when it, that when in first Samuel chapter four, verse three, when it says, let us fetch the ark of the covenant of the Lord out of Shiloh unto us, that they stole it. He says that that basically he tried to argue somehow in the Hebrew, it means that they, they took it. They, they stole it. And that the ones who were supposed to protect it didn't protect it. They stole it. And I don't know. Is this, is this, is first Samuel four about the great robbery? Is this about the great theft that took place in Shiloh? I don't think this is about the great theft. I think it's about Israel had done something that put them in a place where God allowed them to be defeated or God defeated them himself, you could even say. God clearly seems to be in charge. And it's almost like, okay, since God's not going to help us, we'll get the ark, it will save us. But he focused on, they stole it. They stole the ark. And I I just don't, I don't see that. I don't see that. So we're going to jump back into the sermon. I um I backed it up a little bit further than maybe I needed to. But I wanted, I, 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 you know, I, I wanted to, this all to kind of flow together to some level. I know I've spent 11 minutes, but, but that's okay. I spent 11 minutes really trying to kind of work out how I see the text a little bit, but let's jump in. Hopefully this, uh, this will be a smooth transition. A lot of times when you do a part two in a sermon review, I always use the same illustration. I know some of you email me and tell me we're tired of hearing that illustration, but it's like, you know, walking to the edge of the pool and you just jump in. There's no easing yourself back into it, but hopefully I've, I've got this at a place where it feels like it, but we'll see. Are you ready? Here we go. Our goal is what we're really trying to do is to go do basically a a tour, a, a guided tour through what happened at Shiloh so that we can understand Jeremiah seven twelve, and then we can try to ask ourselves, how does that apply to us in 2023? So, that's what we're trying to do. So let's see if we can get there. What it tells us is that Yahweh is going to fulfill his word in this way. Judgment against Eli's house is going to come. Punishment against Israel is going to take place. Do you see what's happening here? Yahweh is allowing this mistreatment against him in order to accomplish his purposes, in order to establish his honor. Now, according to this sermon, Yahweh, God, is allowing this mistreatment of him. And the mistreatment is the stealing of the ark, I guess. But somehow Israel's mistreating him and he's allowing this mistreatment so that he can then ultimately fulfill his purpose. So God is allowing all of this to happen so that 34,000 people can die. It it raises some deep philosophical questions that he doesn't really seem to go he doesn't really seem to acknowledge, hey, God just allowed this to happen so that his purposes could be fulfilled. His judgment against the house of Eli. Well, 34,000 people die. Those are not just random statistics. Those are human beings. Those are sons and fathers. Right? They're human beings. 34,000 people die. Hey, ain't it, ain't it wonderful that God allowed himself to be mistreated so that judge, what, what do you mean he allowed himself to? How's he being mistreated? Is he being mistreated because they stole the ark? How is he being mistreated? Is he being mistreated because of Israel's false worship? Well, doesn't God change the heart? Like there's just so many, so many times Christians say things and I don't think they ever think of all the philosophical and logical ramifications of what they say. Hey, God allowed this to happen. You know, that's awesome. Well, is it? Because 34,000 people are going to die. Or 4,000 people have already died in verse um, 2. Uh, you know, yeah, 4,000. We re, re, let's read 1 Samuel 4, 2. And the Philistines put themselves in array against Israel. And when they joined the battle, Israel was smitten before the Philistines. And they slew of the army and the field about 4,000 men. Then if you go to verse 4 of 1 Samuel 4, 
So the people sent to Shiloh that they might bring uh, for, from thence the Ark of the Covenant and the, uh, of the Lord of the Host, which dwelleth between the cherubims and the two sons of Eli, Hophni, and Phinehas were there with the Ark of the Covenant of God. And when the Ark of the Covenant of the Lord came into the camp, all Israel shouted with a great shout so that the earth rang again. And when the Philistines heard the noise of the shout, they said, what manner the noise of this great shout in the camp and the Hebrew... Uh, in the camp of the Hebrews. And they understood that the ark of the Lord had come into the camp. And the Philistines were afraid, for they said, God has come into the camp. And they said, Woe unto us, for there hath not been such a thing before. Woe unto us, who shall deliver us out of the hands of these mighty gods. These are the gods that smote the Egyptians with all the plagues in the wilderness. And again, we talked about it in part one. It's bizarre that they perceive Israel not to have one God, but multiple gods. They don't perceive Israel to be a monothe- a, monotheist, a monotheistic religion or to hold to a monotheistic religion. They're almost a, polyth- a polytheistic religion. It's kind of interesting that they're like gods instead of one God, right? And we could ask ourselves why. And then it says, be strong and quit yourselves like men, O ye Philistines, that, you, uh, that ye be not servants unto the Hebrews, so they have been to you. Quit yourselves like men and fight. And the Philistines fought and Israel was smitten and they fled every man in his tent. And there was a very great slaughter for there fell of Israel 30,000 footmen, 4,000. And then you have 30,000, 34,000 people die. And God allowed this because he wanted to carry out judgment against the house of Eli. 34,000 people died because he wanted to carry judgment out. All right, let's continue and see what he has to say. Yahweh does the same thing today. He allows us to mistreat him in church. He allows bad doctrine to flourish. He allows wicked behavior to take place in his churches in order to bring about his purposes. Now again, think about that. God allows evil things to happen in churches to carry out his purpose. He allows children to be molested to carry out his purpose. He allows women to be sexually abused or harassed to carry out his purposes. He allows horrible things to happen in the church to carry out his purpose. Now, I look, it, it's one thing to say it, but you got to own it. You got to, you got to, I mean, that raises some serious questions. Now, obviously we believe if God is sovereign, he allows it, but it's not just a, hey, Hey, God, you know, he allows himself to be mistreated. God allows himself to be mistreated. So, and again, in, in 1 Samuel 4, how are, is God being mistreated because they stole the ark or were they mistreated? Was God mistreated before this? Why, why, what, what led to the original defeat and what leads to the second defeat? Now, let, let's see if he's going to answer any of these questions. And usually it's judgment. The greatest example of this in the history of the world, of course, is at the cross. Lots of bad theology there. Lots of bad doctrine and wickedness by the religious leaders of Israel. And yet through that behavior, that mistreatment of Yahweh's son, he accomplished his purposes of redemption. And so our first key point is this. Yahweh is captured by Israel, and yet Yahweh allows it to happen to accomplish what he wants to accomplish. And see, what's weird is he keeps saying Yahweh was captured. Was Yahweh, was Yahweh captured? Was Yahweh captured or was the ark? He said they stole the ark. But isn't the ark and God separate to some level, right? Because they bring the ark in and they're defeated. So you're saying, if you're going to say Yahweh was captured, wouldn't you have to say Yahweh was defeated? They got, they captured the ark. Like if you say they stole the ark, then you say they captured the ark. So I, I, that, that's, I'm a little perplexed when he says Yahweh was captured. I, 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 I'm, I'm not. All right, let, let, let's. It's, it's kind of an interesting that God allows himself to be mistreated. That, that's kind of the, that, I don't see how that's the first point in, I don't understand. 
Yeah. Okay. Someone else is saying, um, it does seem like he's saying that the ark is Yahweh, which is confusing. It does to me as well. I understand God's presence is very intimately connected with the ark, right? So are they saying they stole the ark, so they stole Yahweh, but then Yahweh allowed himself to be mistreated by them taking it when they shouldn't. He allowed it to happen so that he could carry out his purpose. So he allowed it to happen so that they could then be defeated by the, like he didn't have to allow the ark to be taken for them to be defeated by the Philistines. They could have been defeated by the Philistines with the ark being taken or not being taken. So I'm not, I'm not really sure how or what is exactly I, I'm having a hard time following this point, but maybe clarity, maybe clarification is on its way. Now, I mentioned here last time about Psalm 8 and the youth, the children being used by God to accomplish his purposes. Well, you remember Aslan and C.S. Lewis taking up this theme. Aslan willingly goes to his death. Same ideas. Lewis is certainly picking up on on these things. And so here's our first thought. Yahweh is in control. Even to bring about judgment. Even to, if you will, allow Israel to slap him in the face. God is in control. He's in control, so he lets Israel slap him in the face. He hasn't really identified yet how they've slapped him in the face. He hasn't identified that yet, but they slap him in the face, and then 34,000 people died. So God is in control, and he's in control, and he decides to use this power of control to say, slap me in the face so that I can kill 34,000 of you. I, I, at least you have to look, you can't just ignore that. Like when, when Christians say certain things, we have to take it to its logical conclusion, right? Hey, God's in control. And he says, Hey, I'm going to let you, I'm going to let you slap me. There you go. Now, are you happy that you slap me? Now, 34,000 of you die. So it was his purpose, the killing of the 30. He, he, he seems to almost like the 34,000 people dying seems to be secondary to his whole point in his sermon. Hey, 34,000 people die, but don't really worry about that. See, God is in charge and he's accomplishing his purpose. Isn't that a wonderful thing to remember? Isn't that a great lesson to write down? Well, wait a minute. What about the 34,000 people who died? Isn't that somewhat disturbing? And shouldn't it bother us a little bit? I am grateful for the person who made the comment in the, in part one in the chat. They're, they were like, wow, that's a lot of people who died. Like they, they were, they, and, and I liked it because it, they demonstrated that they were more, when they was reading, when they heard the passage read, what's jumped out to them is how many people died. 30,000 people died plus the 4,000. Like the number of people who died is what struck out, stuck out to them. What struck them. And here in this sermon, what is sticking out to him so far, now maybe the 34,000 will, but so far, he he, he kind of just overlooked the 4,000, like, hey, God is allowing himself to be mistreated so he can carry out his purpose. All right, so, all right, let, let's see where this goes. Now, the other idea that we see is this. Israel is seeking to use the ark as a good luck charm. Kind of like people wearing a crucifix or hanging a rabbit's foot from their mirror in their car. Or, uh, unfortunately, with the uh, pirates and the cardinals here these last three days, there are a lot of rally caps in the ninth inning there by pirates fans. It's some magical superstitious thing that somehow is going to help, but of course doesn't. And so here is Israel. Okay, now, I understand that they seem to be looking to the object and not to God. I'm not denying that. But in a roundabout way, when you look at the text, to me, it's almost like they're saying, hey, God didn't help us out. Right? I mean, go back and I'm going I'm to read the text again. 1 Samuel chapter 4, let's start in verse 1. Okay, I'm going to read it again. And the word of Samuel came to all Israel. Now Israel went out against the Philistines to battle and pitched beside Ebenezer. And the Philistines pitched in Aphek. 
And the Philistines put themselves in array against Israel. And when they joined battle, Israel was smitten before the Philistines and they slew of the army in the field about 4,000 men. One battle, 4,000 Israelites dead. And when the people were come into the camp, the elders of Israel said, wherefore hath the Lord smitten us today before the Philistines? I'm going to read it from a different translation. A different translation states it this way. When the troops returned to the camp, the elders of Israel asked, why did the Lord defeat us today before the Philistines? Why did the Lord defeat us? To me, what I'm seeing is like, well, why did God defeat us? Okay, well, God defeated us. God God allowed 4,000 people to die. God killed 4,000 people. However you want them to, to, I don't want to get too far into their mind, but they clearly seem to be blaming God. And then they're like, so what do we do? What do we do? Let's go get the ark. It will save us. And according to this translation, this whole verse reads, When the troops returned to the camp, the elders of Israel asked, why did the Lord defeat us today before the Philistines? Let us bring the ark of the Lord's covenant from Shiloh. Then it will go with us and save us from our, uh, from our, okay, this, uh, this, oh, okay, here we go. All right, from our enemies. So the, 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 I'm trying, remember, I'm remember for those, I apologize. I'm trying to read this in the dark with a flashlight. All right, so I was reading the wrong line. So let's do this again. Here we go. When the troops returned to the camp, the elders of Israel asked, why did the Lord defeat us today before the Philistines? Let us bring the Ark of the Lord's covenant from Shiloh. Then it will go with us and save us from our enemies. So the, so the people sent to Shiloh to bring the Ark of the covenant of the Lord of armies who is enthroned between the cherubim. So they, they, they would say, go get the Ark and let it save us. Now, they seem still to connect it with God, but I, to me, it almost is like, well, God, why did God defeat us? Well, then let's go get the ark and it will save us. Now, they may be looking at it as a good luck charm. They may be looking at it as some kind of superstitious thing, but they see it as, well, we don't have God now. God's not helping us. So what's our only other option? Now, instead of seeming to say, why is God not with us? They seem to say, well, since God isn't, we need a solution. And the only thing they know to turn to is the ark. The ark will help us. That seems to be the, to me, it's a contrast between God is against them. So they're looking for a substitute. Is it, I don't, I don't, is it, is it just, is it because of superstition or is it because they don't have nowhere else to turn? I don't know. Let's, let's see where he takes it trying to use the ark in this magical kind of way to guarantee that Yahweh will help them. Do you see how Israel is acting like the world? This is what pagans would do. They would go into war, and of course, everybody thought of war as a holy war back then, and they would bring their gods with them. They would actually bring Uh, altars or arcs similar to this. They would bring the figures, the idols of their gods. They would have their banners with images of their gods on it. This is what they would bring to battle. Israel didn't do that, remember? The ark stayed in the tabernacle, except with Joshua. Otherwise, it stayed in the tabernacle. They didn't bring images. They didn't bring banners with pictures of Yahweh on it. They didn't do that. But here is Israel acting like the nations. And so they're seeking to manipulate God without true faith in him. See, are they seeking to manipulate God or are they seeking to find a difference? God just defeated them. What's our other option? Is this like, well, manipulate God? I don't, I, I'm, I'm not so sure. Or do they think if we get the ark, then God has to be on our side? I mean, see, there's always the difficulty with preaching this historical narratives is everyone wants to get into the mind of the characters and tell us what the characters were thinking. I'm just trying to go with the text. Why did God defeat us? Let's go get the ark and and then specific language. It will save us. They, They don't even mention God saving them. They don't even seem to imply that God will help them. They're like, it will save us. This seems to me that they're like, well, since God is against me, I need another option. 
I, I don't, I don't, I don't, I don't know. I don't know. They, he still hasn't explained yet why why they've been defeated. All right, but let's continue. Do we do that with our prayers? Do we do that with our church attendance, our daily devotions? Do we have a kind of rally cap theology, thinking that if we just do this out or the other, we can twist God's arm to doing what we want? Is that the application here? Is the application here, hey, do you use your church attendance to manipulate God to do what you need? Or would it be more like, well, since God is not helping me out, I'm going to come up with a different solution. What, what, what do you think is the correct? App- Remember, application has to be based on what the text is actually saying. What is the text actually saying? I'm not so sure I see it the way he sees it, but you can tell me which one you, uh, hey, by all means, let me know. You may not even under- agree with me. I mean, this is the wonderful world of, of Bible, right? Nobody agrees on anything, but. I'm, I'm having a hard time following this. And, and, and so when we understand what happened at Shiloh, what really happened at Shiloh? What really happened? Was it the people gave up on God and looked for a substitute and they looked to this object and therefore God brought destruction upon Shiloh because they turned to an, they replaced God with an object. Is, is that what happened? Like the more we need to understand what happened at Shiloh. Make sure you understand this. We have to know exactly what happened at Shiloh to properly interpret Jeremiah seven twelve because he tells us to go to Shiloh and see what happened. So we need to know what happened and why it happened so that we can understand the warning in Samuel and uh, Jeremiah seven twelve. Now, Israel was right to associate Yahweh with the ark, just like it is right for us to rely on prayer and the reading of the scriptures and coming to church. But Israel is wrong to manipulate God. If we do the same, certainly it is wrong for us. Israel had faith in the ark, not faith in Yahweh. Do we have faith in prayer, faith in our church attendance, faith in our religious practices, or do we have faith in God, in Christ himself? Now, we got to think this through logically. If they're using the ark to manipulate God, well, then they obviously have faith in God, right? Hey, we just have to find a way to manipulate. If, if the whole thing is this, if this is a manipulation play, right? I mean, I don't know anything about manipulation because I'm not a woman, but I hear women are very good at manipulation. So if a woman has faith or trust that her husband has the ability to give her what she wants, give her the money, buy her this, do what, what then, and she uses manipulation, she's using the manip- manipulation because she knows she has confidence, she has faith that the husband can do what she wants. She just has to get him to do it. If Israel's trying to manipulate, and I, that was just a joke, ladies, don't get all mad and upset with me, okay? But all right, you get the idea. If if Israel is manipulating God through the use of the ark, then that would not be that they don't have faith in God. It would mean that they're like, well, God is mad at us. We don't know how to fix it. Let's use the ark. But our faith, their faith would still be in God, right? Because they know that God can ultimately defeat their enemy. So we just got to get, we got to find a way to manipulate God to get him to do what we need. It wouldn't be that they don't have faith in him. They just don't, they just don't either, they don't have faith that they can make things right with God. They don't have faith that God will actually help them out. Well, I mean, they already have a good example of God not helping them out. So they figure we need a way to get God on our side. It's not that they don't have faith in him. Um, yeah, that, okay, that, that's what, okay, someone sees it that way. I don't see it as manipulation. I'm like, well, God, God, God defeated us. So option number two, the ark. What, what's their, what's their other option? What's their other option? Who do they turn to? They're in a battle with the Philistines. They don't have time to come up with like, hey, let's come up with an elaborate battle strategy. No, let's go get the Ark uh, because it's it, it has a history of some very powerful things happening in, in relation to it. So let's go get it. 
I, I, I just, but if, if they're manipulating God, I think that would require faith in God. I don't think it's like, well, they didn't have any faith in God. They had faith in the, the, uh, the, the ark. Well, if that's the case, then they're not manipulating God, right? So, like, you can't say they're manipulating and they don't have faith because to manipulate means you're manipulating because you are very sure that the person can do exactly what you are getting ready to manipulate them to do. Well, because of this, Hophni and Phinehas are acting like Achan, along with the rest of Israel. And this is why they lost. They were doing what was right in their own eyes. So they lost the second battle because they were doing what was right in their own eyes? Or did they lose both battles because they were doing what is right in their own eyes? So is the message in Jeremiah 7, 12, stop doing what is right in your own eyes or are you going to end up like Shiloh? So is the, is the, is the issue is they were judged because they were doing what was right in their own eyes. Let me read here a little bit from Dr. Davis in this context. He says these things. <clears throat> Their assumption is this. If we bring the ark to battle... Yahweh will be forced to deliver us to protect his honor. Should something happen to the ark, it would make Yahweh the loser. And naturally, he would not allow that to happen. He'll have to save us now. His honor is at stake. Yet now, excuse me, they now have God under pressure because they have the sign of his presence. Hence, he dare not allow them to lose. Okay, if you go with that approach then they do have faith in God. <laughs> hey, hey, we've got a way. We've got the, we've got the, we've, we've got it figured out. Go get the ark. God will be forced to do something. They have per- perfect confidence and faith that God can defeat their enemy. They just, fig- they're just trying to figure out how to get God to use that power and ability on their behalf. So it doesn't mean that that's it, complete. I don't understand how you can say they don't have faith in God. They have faith in the ark and then turn around and then read a commentary that says, Hey, no, they were like, Hey, this is what we'll do. We'll get the ark. And then God has to protect the honor and integrity of the ark because it's a symbol of his presence. So God will act. That's, that's demonstrating great faith in God. That <laughs> doesn't show a lack of faith in God. It just shows that they don't have faith that God's going to help them out now, but they have faith that God has the power and the ability to help. They just have to figure out how to manipulate God into helping. So, all right. To have God's furniture is to have God's power. The ark is their religious ace in the hole. When I was eight or nine years old, I remember learning a lesson that was taught to my older brother. He seemed to have a practice of asking a girl for a date and making plans for the evening. Then, on that given evening, perhaps an hour or two beforehand, he would go in and ask our father for the car, indicating that he had a date. Now, I was only an indirect observer and was always in the other room, but I didn't need good ears. And now he paraphrases his father. You don't go asking, uh, excuse me, getting a date and making plans and then coming here to ask for the car. I don't go for those high-pressure tactics. You ask for the car first, then you get your date. Saved me a lot of trouble a few years later. But Pop knew about high-pressure tactics. If my brother had made all his plans, then asked for the car but was refused, why then who's the bad guy? What kind of dad is that? So my father smelled an underlying assumption. I have all these plans made, and if you don't come through on your end, your reputation will hit zero. Israel seemed to hold a similar assumption. It was a pressure tactic, a way of twisting God's arm. Now, what I love about preaching is you can take a text that has very few words and take those words and turn it into 
this was them manipulating God and then go out and extrapolate supposedly not their motive, the way they were thinking, what they were feeling. And, and, and look, I've done the same thing. It's so easy to do it in preaching, right? You're like, okay, I gotta make, I gotta find a practical way to make this. Uh, I gotta make, a, I got a way to make this practical to the people. So, okay, what did they do? And you, the more you think about, it, I know what they were doing. They were manipulating God. But for me, it was more like, God, you defeated us. We, we'll go get the ark. The ark will help us out. I mean, do you believe that this demonstrate all oh, this, this great illustration being utilized of, of, of a teenager manipulating their dad? Was this the teenage Israelites, the, the teenager, spiritually speaking, trying to manipulate their God? It was this a manipulate. I'm not saying it's not there, but it's just, don't you find it interesting how the text may not actually tell us what the motives were, but we're so good at coming along telling them like they're, they're all dead and gone. And we're like, Hey, this is what they were really doing. This was what they were really thinking. But do we really know what their thinking was other than what the text seems to indicate? Hey, why did God defeat us? Go get the ark and then look carefully the language and the text. It will save us. Is that not how we try to determine the reason? Right, someone says it does seem to read into it. At least I think so. I could be wrong. Again, I'm just going with the words of the text. All right. All right. Of the words of the text are very simple. Let us fetch the ark. This is 1 Samuel 4 3. Let us fetch the ark of the covenant of the Lord out of Shiloh unto us, that when it cometh among us, it may save us out of the hands of our enemies. Versus what was said previously about why did God defeat us? It's a contrast between God defeated us, the ark will save us. Instead of saying, why did God defeat us? They're like, we don't care about the why. We don't know why. We're going to go get the ark. And he's turning like, oh, we've got a way. We'll manipulate God. Now, maybe it was manipulation. I just don't know how dogmatic you can be in regards to what the text actually says. That is not faith, but superstition. It is what I call rabbit foot theology. When we... I say, I don't... what, What do you mean it's not faith? If you're manipulating God, you have complete faith and confidence and he's going to, you, all you're doing is God has the power and the ability of complete faith in that. I just got to figure out how to get God to do, use that power on my behalf that I don't see how that's not faith. That's complete trust in God's ability to do so, even in complete trust that God will do something. It's just, I've got to figure out how to get him to do it. If you're going to say that he's using manipulation, if you're going to go with this overall theory, I don't know why he keeps saying it's not faith. It's just, well, all right, God has the ability, the uh, he can. All I've got to do is figure out the formula. And the formula is, hey, Lord, we've got your ark. Come on, you don't want it to be destroyed. Come on, you better do something. That's the claim. I'm saying it's, hey, guys, God's obviously upset with us. He defeated us. We got to come up with a solution. Go get the ark. It will help us. God won't. The ark will. Now, I don't, which one do you think is more true to the text? And this is very important because we know we need to know exactly what happened at Shiloh because in uh, Jeremiah 7, 12, God tells us to go look at Shiloh and see what happened. We need to know exactly what happened so that we can understand how that applies then to Jeremiah 7, 12. Whether Israelites or Christians operate this way, our concern is not to seek God, but to control him, not to submit to God, but to use him. So we prefer religious magic to spiritual holiness. We are interested in success, not repentance. And I would add again this, Israel repented in Joshua 7. They don't repent here. Now, let's transition from these opening thoughts to the next set of verses in this way. As I mentioned at the beginning, we are now turning away from Samuel and we're turning to the ark. Let me give you a couple statistics here. 
The ark, of course, we talked about in Acts chapter 25. This is God's throne. He sat on the wings of the cherub. His feet were on the footstool, the covering of the ark. There's no image of God there. And so obviously this is a very important symbol in, in Israel. Um, but even in Acts, or excuse me, Exodus chapters 25 to 40, those 16 chapters, the ark is only mentioned 26 times. In Joshua 3, chapters 3 to 6, what I've been referring to here, it's used 27 times. When they brought the ark after its capture here and it was brought back to Israel and so forth, and, and, and eventually when they brought it to Israel to put in the temple, in 1 Chronicles chapters 13 to 16, those four chapters, it's used 29 times. In this chapter here, this section here, chapters 4, 5, and 6, three chapters, it's used 34 times, more than any other place in the scriptures. Clearly, the presence of Yahweh is our focal point. And notice how they're using it. They're manipulating it. Now, in addition to this, in all of 1 Samuel, the ark is used 40 times. So 34 here in this section. And six different names are used for the ark. Only twice is it called the Ark, period. Fourteen times is called the Ark of God. Thirteen times the Ark of Yahweh. Seven times the Ark of the God of Israel. Three times the Ark of the Covenant of Yahweh, which we see here in verses 3, 4, and 5. And one time, in verse 4, the Ark of the Covenant of God. Now, in the end, it all refers to the same thing, but these different names do emphasize different things in the context. So here, to call it the Ark of the Covenant of Yahweh, and then to call it the Ark of the Covenant of God, their covenant Lord, their creator God, is bringing covenant curses against Israel. His presence is there to bring judgment. Here is the focus. It's also mentioned in verse 6. Notice the Philistines call the ark the ark of Yahweh here. The ark of the Lord. Israel's God has come into their midst. And then in verse 11, it's called the ark of God. The creator God, Elohim, who governs all things, has now been captured. And so our focus here is very specific here in this way. Now, one more thing here, before we look at verse 5, I want you to see the structure of these first 11 verses. Verse 1 and 2 tell us about the battle. Verse 3 and 4 tell us about the ark's capture by Israel. Verse 5 is the response of Israel at the ark's coming. Verses 6 to 9 we have the response of the Philistines to the Ark's capture. It's weird that he's, I don't know, like almost 40 minutes into the sermon and then he then offers the outline of the chapter. Typically you would read it, then give the outline, then work through the outline and the, and the, it's kind of a weird place to put the outline. Kind of a weird place. And, I, I still don't know if I agree with his interpretation here, but you can offer your own interpretation. So what we really still need to figure out is exactly what happened at Shiloh, exactly why, how, the who, what, where, when, how to help us understand Jeremiah seven twelve. But all right, let's continue. And then verse 10, we come back to a battle. And verse 11, we have the ark being taken again, this time by the Philistines. This word take is used nine times here in chapter 4 and into chapter 5. And it's the same word in the Hebrew, translated differently in the English. The first time is verse 3. Again, New King James says bring, it should be take or capture. Verse 11, same word, they translate. He, He obviously is very convinced that it is important for us to see that Israel stole it. They captured it. They took it. And it's just, I, I just, 
Did they go steal it from Shiloh? Did they have to break in? Was it Mission Impossible? All right. At 0300, we're going in and we're taking the Ark. All right. We're taking the Ark. Is, is that, did they cap, did they steal it? He seems convinced that that's very important for us to understand. They kept, they didn't just go get it. They stole it. They captured it. They took it. I, 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 does that, does that Im, Im, impact your interpretation of the entire thing? So was then the, 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 the downfall of Shiloh, was it because they stole the ark? So, hey, Jeremiah, go look at what happened in Shiloh. Don't steal the ark. Is that, is that the message? I, 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 I'm just trying to figure out exactly. They manipulate. So his, his issue is they stole the ark and doing so, I guess, mistreat God. And then they tried to manipulate God while yet not having faith in God, yet manipulating. Well, okay. Whatever. All right. You, you, you. All right. Let's just finish it up. Finish it up. Related his capture. If you look down at verse 17, it says about the ark of God has been captured, the end of the verse. Verse 19, okay, we see it again. The ark has been captured. Okay, in verse 21 and 22, it says again about the ark being captured. Same word here. And then in chapter 5, verse 1, the Philistines took the Ark of God, right? What they have captured. And verse 2, it says um, about um, uh, the Philistines taking the Ark of God and putting it in Dagon's house. And then in verse 3, note the complete opposite thought here, the end of the verse. So they took Dagon, same word, and set him on his feet. Okay, uh, Clear contrast here. Yahweh's captured, but not really. It's Dagon that's having to be toted around. And so Samuel was wasn't the ark toted around? God wasn't really captured. Dagon had to be toted around. So he was the one who was captured. Didn't they have to carry the ark? I mean, the ark didn't float, did it? Like, didn't have to tote it around. Like, I don't, I'm not understanding what I, I, I'm missing something here. I'm missing something, right? Um, all right. So I, I guess uh, someone's just as asking. So the basic premise he seems to be making is they, they didn't have faith in God. So they grabbed the ark in order to manipulate God, which I still don't think manipulating to me proves they have faith. So they, they, they stole the ark. They didn't have faith in God and they tried to manipulate God. That, that seems to be, I, I, that's the bad. I mean, I don't know. Everyone, you, you guys can try to summarize it yourself. I'm just having a hard time trying to figure out exactly I, that's the wonderful thing about listening to sermons is we're confronted with different pr perspectives, right? So I, right now I'm just trying to figure it out. Like what's the, well, Dagon had to be toted around and the ark had to be toted around. So by that implication, you can say God has to be toted. I, I don't know how, I, I, I'm not understanding that contrast. All right, let's continue. Daniel is a master wordsmith here. I'm just trying to bring out some of how he's arranged all this for us to see. Um, and so, with that as kind of our interlude here in the middle, let's now return to the story. And we pick up in verse 5. So we have the battle, verses 1 and 2. Israel capturing Yahweh, verses 3 and 4. Now the response of Israel to the ark's coming, verse 5. And when the ark of the covenant of the Lord came into the camp, all Israel shouted so loudly that the earth shook. Ever been to a football game hey, or something like that? You know, Penn State, you know, these huge stadiums. Hey. <clears throat> um, the earth does shake, especially when people are stomping their feet or something like that. The point simply is this. Israel felt invincible now. Yahweh was with them now, as if he wasn't before. 
Right? You see their bad theology. They were trusting in the ark, not in Yahweh. But Yahweh is not limited. So now verses 6 to 9, here's the response of the Philistines. Verse 6, Now when the Philistines heard the noise of the shout, they said, What does the sound of this great shout in the camp of the Hebrews mean? And they understood that the ark of the Lord had come into the camp. Now remember, they're only a couple, three miles away. So it'd be like us here and, you know, people at the Kubert's house. And, you know, we shout so loudly you can hear from there. And remember, the Philistines had just routed the Israelites. So why in the world would Israel be shouting in this way? At first, they likely did not know. At some point, maybe they sent out a scout or something like that. They find out that the ark had come. And so the Philistines had felt invincible, but now they feel vulnerable. And so notice how they are tying Yahweh's presence to the ark. They thought God had now come into Israel's camp, as if he wasn't there before. Of course, he couldn't have been because they beat Israel. You can see their logic here from a pagan mindset. But Yahweh is not tied to man-made things. You can expect the Philistines to think this way. Unfortunately, so did the the Israelites. So anyway, verse 7. So the Philistines were afraid. For they said, God has come into the camp. That's the name Elohim here. And they said, woe to us, for such a thing has never happened before. Elohim has come. Israel and the Philistines had the same views. Verse 5, and now here, verse 7. Because the ark stayed in the tabernacle when Shamgar defeated the Philistines, and later uh, Samson defeated the Philistines, they now say, this has never happened before. The ark has never come to battle before because Israel realized they didn't need a box in their midst. But now they think they do. Notice how the Philistines know the names of Israel's God. They call him Yahweh. They call him Elohim. And then if you look at verse 8, they say, Woe to us again. Who will deliver us from the hand of these mighty gods? These are the gods who struck the Egyptians with all the plagues in the wilderness. And so note their despair, but also note their bad theology. They call Israel's God Yahweh and Elohim, but they view them as two different gods, not the same. And so note their polytheism, which, again, you would expect. And notice how they have understanding about the Exodus, but you see how it's been corrupted. Nevertheless, they now have no hope. Do you see how these pagans have corrupted true history, have corrupted true theology? They've interpreted these things within their worldview. We should not be surprised today when non-Christians reinterpret history. The 1619 Project, among many other things, should not surprise us at all because they are reinterpreting the history of America. Oh, come on now. We shouldn't be surprised when pagans re- reinterpret history. Like, Christians don't do that? Have you ever read some Christians talk about history? Give me a break. But Christians have no corner on the market that the only people who can really understand history correctly are saved people because pagans, the 1619 Project. Have you ever read The Trail of Blood by, uh, I can't remember who did that, uh, the, the, the book on supposed church history? Oh, there's all kinds of problems. I've read plenty of books written by Christians on church history that are a total travesty to the subject. So don't. And that's that's covering our own history. So where did where did like Christians will uh, non-Christians will can't get history right. But as Christians, we can. Through a non-Christian lens rather than through the truth and the lens of people wanting to serve God. 
So we see the Philistines do that. We shouldn't be surprised when modern-day Philistines in our country do the same kind of thing. Oh, that is such... Oh, my goodness. That... Oh. oh, boy. So the only people we should listen to when they talk about history should be Christians. Because Christians have such a great track record of always getting history right. So then, verse 9. Four commands here. Be strong and conduct yourselves like men, you Philistines, that you do not become servants of the Hebrews as they have been to you. Conduct yourselves like men and fight. So two commands at the beginning, two at the end. And note what they're doing. Let's go down swinging is the idea here. The Philistines are despairing and thinking they have no hope now. What's going to happen to them has already happened in Egypt. Now, it turns out they're kind of right, as we'll see in chapter 5. But um, they're thinking, hey, we better do anything and everything possible to see if we might happen to win. You see how Israel's superstitious view of the ark actually encouraged the Philistines to fight harder. Do you think non-Christians today are feeling emboldened because Christians do not really understand the truth? Seems that way. Well, if Christians don't really understand the truth, then we're probably no better at history. Right? Right. So, we have... The battle, verses 1 and 2, Israel taking the ark, verses 3 and 4, Israel responding to the coming of the ark in verse 5, the Philistines' response, verses 6 to 9. Now we return to the battle again, verse 10. And it says, So the Philistines fought, and Israel was defeated, and every man fled to his tent. There was a very great slaughter, and there fell of Israel 30,000 foot soldiers. Now, there are five main clauses here in this verse, all rapid fire, all pressing the point very, very strongly. And the point is clear. Israel was blown out of the water, as it were. They're completely routed, 30,000. Unlike what happened with Joshua at Ahi, they went and routed the inhabitants of Ai. Not here. And that's because Israel is still sinning. In this case, they had not rooted out the Achans among them. In fact, they all seem to be like Achan in one way or another. So then verse 11, again, we see the ark taken, captured, and it says... "All." Okay, we'll stop there. Uh, the name of that sermon is Yahweh is Captured. Uh, Scott L. Fleming, you can li- find it on the Sermons 2.0 app, and you can listen to the rest of that sermon for yourself. Um, I guess he believes what happened at Shiloh was because the people had eight, there were Achans in the camp and they had not rooted them out. So are you to go to Shiloh and Jeremiah seven twelve? go look at what happened at Shiloh and get rid of the Achans out of Judah? Or is it because like, how do we enter or just know that, hey, judge, when judgment comes, it's going to be Dramatic. Like, what do you take from 1 Samuel 4 to help you better understand Jeremiah 7 12? That is what I want you to do. But I want you to figure out why Israel was defeated two times. What led to that defeat? And how could that apply to uh, Jeremiah 7 12? And how could that apply to you or me in 2023? There you go. There's much more I could say there, but I'll let you say it. So email me, newsif at yahoo.com, newsif at yahoo.com. Love to get your thoughts and feedback on all of this. I do apologize if at any point there I had some trouble trying to read just because of my current setup here. Uh, yeah, it's a little difficult to read in the dark, but yeah, that's that's okay. That's okay. I probably should have grabbed my uh, Bible app and used that, but um, I'm much better at turning the pages on it than I am sometimes. It, I guess it's easier to go click on it and then change it, but I'm just so familiar with the physical Bible that it's just faster for me to turn it that way. But, you know, there you go. Lessons learned. 
when you're bro- when you're podcasting in the dark. All right. I don't know if that was helpful. Someone said thank you, probably because you know I, I probably send them money or something. There's probably some you know, only people who ever say thank you are the people I pay. So um, yeah, there you go. Hopefully it was beneficial. All right, thanks for listening. There you go. Keep yeah, hey, don't forget your your assignment on Shiloh. Look up all the references. Read everything about Shiloh. Look up Bible uh, Bible dictionary, Bible encyclopedia. Get everything you can learn about Shiloh. The who, what, where, when, how, and then see how that applies to Jeremiah seven twelve. And then choose a random sermon on your own from the Sermons two app and listen to it and uh, see what you discover and what you found. And you can go finish that one, but it won't count as yours. Because I found that one. That's mine. I found that one. Not you. So you don't get to claim that one. But when you listen to yours, I want you to take good notes. And then I want you to uh, send me the link so that maybe maybe we review another one. I don't know. But there you go. All right. Thanks for listening. Everyone have a great night. I'm going to go eat some pizza. All right. That's what I'm going to go do. All right. Thanks for listening. Email me, newsif at yahoo.com. Newsif at yahoo.com. My pizza has arrived. So I'm going to go eat. Everyone have a good one. Thank you for listening. God bless.